This is an AMI podcast. I'm Kelly McDonald. I'm Ramia Amadin, and this is Kelly and Ramia. Still going through a lot of these firsts. Yeah, I don't know if you heard me, but I'm saying still going through a lot of these firsts here on the show. We launched to TV, and there's a just never know, right? It's always different. In audio, he could roam around, and we were in an enclosed space, and it was totally cool. And now with video involvement and TV and all this other stuff, I'm just keeping my <laughs> fingers crossed that that barking fit was the last one of the time. I thought he'd been in there before. No, not for TV. Oh. Not for TV. Oh, okay. No. I figured there he could just roam around. He could be anywhere in the office. Yeah, he was before the show. Not, not I'm sure. Make that the responsibility of everybody that happens to be silly enough to come in that day uh, that he's around. You mean for everybody a fun time. For a fun uh-huh. time. But I'm Ramia Abedin. I join you from Toronto. Kelly McDonald joins us from London, Ontario. And we're going to talk now about Astro Access. This is an initiative that's dedicated to a disability inclusion in space exploration for the benefit of humankind with the ultimate goal of flying one or more team members to space in the coming years. And uh, it's going to be really, really interesting to hear more about this mm-hmm. recent discovery. It's They've successfully completed their first weightless research flight with a crew of people with disabilities from around the world, including Lindsay Yaslino, uh, who's totally blind and who joins us right now to talk more about her experience. Lindsay, thank you for coming on, Kelly and Ramia. Hi, thank you so much for having me. I'm glad to be here. Oh, we're so excited to talk to you. Yeah. A, because this is one of our favorite topics of all time. So let's talk about you <laughs> first. Awesome. Tell us about your work with Astro Access. Okay, yeah. Um, so I joined the Ax- the Astro Access crew um, last year for this flight. And before then, I'd done a lot of work with science. I- I've worked in science fields. Um, I've also done some work with science accessibility and with uh, mainstream science research. So when I found out about this this mission, I was super excited to try and see if I could be part of it. And I applied and, uh, well, I applied the first year and then I applied this year and got in and it was super exciting. Um, do you want me to tell you about some of like what we did on the flight? We're totally going to get into that, but just to preface it as well, tell us why it's important to you, this experience of, um, accessibility in terms of space exploration. Oh, absolutely. So, I mean, in general, as someone who loves science and who has always loved science, I've always been really uh, um, excited about anything where the goal is to increase um, accessibility and participation of people in science. And the way I look at it is like everybody who has the brain to do science um, and the passion to do science should be able to, whether the, you know, in the formal context or uh, citizen science, which is like uh, opportunities for anybody who, even if, uh, if they don't have a formal science background can do science. So I'm all about everybody being able to participate in science. And of course, being blind, my personal experience is that, of course, I know I love science. I've met a ton of other blind people who love science and who want to pursue science careers. And so 
Um, of course, I'm also really aware that there's a lot of barriers that still exist. There's a lot of mm -hmm. people yeah. not getting proper. Yeah. Um, of course, you know, a lot of us as blind people were aware that like people don't realize that we can do science or, you know, even people who do realize we can do science um, may not know how to, you know, whether it's science teachers, um, colleagues may not know of like the resources that could yep. be useful for us. Um, so I so, got to ask yeah. you that, Lindsay. Yeah, I'm really curious, ahead. since you're a person who loved science as a kid, grew up, and now you're you're doing what you're doing. We'll get into more of that in a second. But you also yeah. said you had to apply, obviously. You got yes. first time, turned down kind of thing, not, not making it yet, but things would change. Can you tell us a little bit about that process and for yourself in the way of your interest carrying you into um, the the science field and the things that maybe just touch on that you've kind of been a part of and when you applied, what did you have to do? Yeah, um, okay, so a while back in 2019, I participated in a, a conference called Sci Access, and as the name implies, it's all about science accessibility for people with different disabilities. Um, and through that conference, I was, I was there presenting on some of the work I've done with um, creating tactile museum exhibits and uh, other kinds of hands-on science experiences. So I, I went to that conference and as it turned out, some of the people organizing that conference were also um, ended up forming Astro Access. So um, I found out about the application process. Um, I knew that it, it, it felt like it fit in really well with a lot of the work I'd been doing, which um, I started off doing cognitive neuroscience research, looking at how us as blind people, how our brains uh, develop. So learning about how our brains process all kinds of non-visual experiences and um, how non-visual cognition works. And so right. I did work on that. And then um, I had done some other uh, uh work advising museums and um, other scientists and other just a whole lot of different people about uh, projects where they want they've wanted to create hands-on experiences and so when I found out about, about Astro Access it fit very nicely because you know, it's all about um, increasing uh, space access you know figuring mm -hmm. out how we can make space travel accessible mm -hmm. and like really really doing that on a practical level. You know, we can say that we want space travel to be accessible, but then also we need to like do the work and do the experiments. Yes. Yeah. Be a part of it, make those decisions, and, make the suggestions and make yeah. it happen. And also like, let's face it. I mean, the idea of going on a zero gravity flight was just sounded super cool. Exactly. Oh, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. That's what I keep thinking. I'm like, oh man, it got practical because of the zero gravity. So exactly. tell us how you prepped for this flight. Okay, so um, the way it worked for us, so there was a whole team. There were um, 16 total ambassadors. Two of the ambassadors were on a different flight. So there were 14 of us on this flight, plus all the flight crew and some others that were involved with um, just making sure all the logistics were working as they should. Um, so uh, for us, so there were a few there were people with various disabilities. So there were blind people, deaf people, people with um, who use wheelchairs and um, a couple of uh, people who are neurodivergent. And so we we tended to uh, work on projects based on accessibility needs and things that seemed important based on those. So uh, the blind crew of which I was a part, uh, we were working on a project where we developed a system of tactile graphics 
to help people orient while they're in zero gravity. Because if you think about it, you know, you're blind, mm. there's no yeah. gravity. You don't know, like, there's not that automatic, um, you know, we like when we have gravity, we don't even have to think about where the floor is. But when right. you when you don't have gravity, any surface you land on could potentially be the floor, it could be the ceiling, it could be the walls. Yeah. So we developed a system of tactile graphics. So, you know, you might be floating around, you reach out, you touch a wall, and you can feel a symbol and be like, oh, which way is down? So wow, you can that's figure amazing. out which way is down. Yeah. Because you don't <laughs> think about that. Like they say, when you go underwater and, you know, it's hard to believe that you may not know up from down and the same thing in space. Um, and, and what was it? Some stuff as simple as just an arrow and you knew that arrow meant ceiling is this way. Yeah. So it, it, a lot of it is very simple. So the um, the first thing, the, the way we figured it should work is like the like the first thing you want to know is which way is down because we had other right. information that we um encoded in this tactile these tactile graphics as well so we actually just used a tactile like a, a print letter v and depend and the v points downward so you right. can't help but feel this huge letter v and be like oh the, yeah. this way is down um or you you come to it and if it's like sideways you know that oh the my you know my feet are pointed toward a wall if it's upside down then you know your feet are pointed toward the ceiling so we had we had that and then we also um we had symbols to show where different emergency equipment is and how far away it is and um keep in mind this is this is just our first go at developing this so the whole idea was to test how quickly people could read these symbols mm -hmm. while they're in yes. zero gravity um, so we designed them. We this was essentially our first round of testing. Right. Um, yeah. So so it was a lot of work. We we went to New York, um, to the New York Public Library where um, Chancy Fleet runs this amazing program. Uh, with oh goodness, it's all kinds of um, non visual uh, DIY materials and resources there. So we worked on developing the graphics. It was a whole, imagine like several blind people with a tactile drawing board and, you know, us drawing different ideas for tactile graphics and then being able to collaborate, look at them together and be like, ah, no, this one needs to be, <laughs> you know, smaller, yeah. this symbol needs to be bigger, that kind of thing. Or like, hey, we love this. So it was a lot of doing that ahead of time. And then once we actually got to uh, Houston where the flight was happening, it was like several days of mad scrambling to finish all of our <laughs> experiments and have everything ready and, you know, figure out where everything goes and practicing our whole flight plan and getting everything ready. So it was, it was definitely, um, if you looked wow. at us, it, we were all in very much in work mode um, until mm. it was, you know, finally time to actually fly. It sounds... And what was the flight like? Yeah, I, I knew you. I knew you. Someone was going to ask. Um, <laughs> so the flight was amazing. I want to do it again. I, I, oh goodness. Okay, so um, I first of all, I love air travel. Like I am one of the rare people that likes loves turbulence when I fly. Like to me, that makes flying fun. So I was really excited in general just to be on an airplane and to do something, you know, super cool while I'm on that airplane. So when it was flight day, um, so actually our flight ended up getting delayed a day because our plane was in a different city. So, you know, we had to kind of readjust our expectations and be like, okay, we're not flying today, but we'll fly tomorrow. So flight day comes, the actual flight day comes. 
um, we step onto this plane. So we were at this local Ellington Field Airport in, in Houston, which is like a very local airport. And you know, we get on the plane. Uh, most of us boarded through the back of the plane. Um, those of us who were like walking on. Um, and so we walked into this plane and there were several, like there were seven rows of just seats. And then the whole rest of the plane, the whole middle and front of the plane was just this big padded open, essentially like a big old fun house. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Lindsay, you're yes. kind of going to have to leave us on a cliffhanger because we're absolutely out of time. But oh I my wanted, God, okay. <laughs> I know, but I wanted to, okay. I want to say this is like part one of the conversation because we'd love okay. to get you back and talk about the, the experience and also how it translates back out into, you know, people without disabilities and how they can benefit from this um, tactile system and all the other translations that have taken on to put this project together. Thank you so much. It's just the beginning. Thank you so much. This has been a lot of fun, and I, I hope to come back. Oh, yeah. For sure you're going to come back on. Lindsay Yazzolino okay. <laughs> is talking to us about her experience on the zero-gravity flight with Astro Access. We'll talk to her very soon to find out more about it. But after the break, we're finding out more about a study linking scrolling and screen time to low self-esteem in teenagers with Margaret Weldon. We'll be back on Kelly and Romeo. Don't go away. There's more great conversation with Kelly and Ramya right around the corner. The neutral zone. As promised, one of our AMI audio specials or originals, I should say. The neutral zone panel will be rejoined by Jagoba athlete Tony Wolb, who stops to stop uh, stops by to talk about his experience as chair of the Canadian Paralympic Committee uh, Athletes Council. That's what it is. We were talking about that with uh, Brock Richardson earlier this week. And he's going to tell us about some of the hot button issues during his tenure on the council. The Neutral Zone, as you know or may not know, airs at 11 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-audio on Tuesdays. And if you miss it, you can check it out on podcasts and on YouTube as a video podcast. I'm Ramia Amadan in Toronto, Ontario. Kelly McDonald joining us from London, Ontario. And let's settle back as we're joined by contributor and freelance reporter for our program, Margaret Weldon. Weldon, welcome back to the show. How are you? Oh, I'm good, thanks. I, I almost feel like I live on your show. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, you know what? I've said that to Grant. I, between the two of you, my goodness, um, I think that the, the name's going to have to be extended. We'll have to put a bunch of Anne's and Grant and Margaret. Welcome back. Uh, today, you've compiled some okay. items for us to talk about. We'll dive into these articles. Where are we starting? Okay. So I thought with, um, with, with the Bell Let's Talk Day coming up tomorrow, I thought mm -hmm. we'd start with this one. Um, the, and I'm going to try and get this right because it's a long name. The National Eating Disorder Center, uh, sorry, Information Center, conducted a study that lasted about five years to find out what kind of effects um, scrolling or video games or even just going on to uh, uh, social platforms have on teens. And they overwhelmingly found out that a lot of teens who you, are, who you see, you know, texting all the time or 95% of the time or whatever, do it because, and, they, and this affects their self-esteem. 
And the reason being is is that you get a sites like uh, Instagram, TikTok, and I think even Facebook for that matter, who, you know, have people that show their pictures uh, on the websites, you know, whether it be celebrities or just be somebody wanting to show themselves off. And in most cases, they have what teens might consider, quote unquote, uh, perfect body. So in other words, you know, they, there's no blemishes. Um, they're not overweight. You know, just everything you could want is, is there and everything you don't want basically isn't. And then right. what's happening is teens are comparing themselves. They're, they're checking mm. out the body image and they're comparing it to their body image. And they're going, well, wait a second here. Um, you, you know, what can we do to improve this? So then what they do, sometimes they'll go and they'll eat something because that's what they do out of anger. But then they turn around and they blame themselves um, for not having the quote-unquote perfect body because of whatever it is that they've eaten. And as a result, they, they turn, you know, they, they start uh, denying themselves food and uh, various things like that. Now, a representative from this uh, eating disorder center says that, you know, th- th- there could be a number of things that we can do. Number one, these uh, social platform companies may need to start re-examining or revisiting the kinds of pictures and that they're going to put on websites because a lot of teenagers do feed into this stuff. And the other thing is, is that, you know, parents, teachers, guardians, whatever, could also take some responsibility and kind of take a look at what their teens are doing. And even their kids that are, you know, even 9 or 10 for that matter, because they, this is, you know, when they tend to start to uh, scroll, as they call it, or, or be on the websites a little bit more. Mm-hmm. So I thought maybe we would get your thoughts today. So we'll start with you, Kelly. What's, what's your thoughts on all this? Margaret, we've heard about this kind of thing for so long, whether it be in magazines or descriptions on, like what people see on TV, um, even darn, darn well the toys that, that kids would play with and looking for these, quote, perfect bodies, unquote, but mostly just looking to fit in. I, I don't even want to suggest that, you know, someone's necessarily thinking, oh, I, I want to look like this person because, you know, they're so attractive. They're so. I think when we find my body isn't the same as most people around me, maybe I have more of a belly, more of a, I look funny here, or I, do, I don't even walk right in, in a sense. So, you know, sometimes we don't. We I may have a limp or, or something else, let's say, for an example. Something that when we start to grow up, we think that, oh, I, I'm different. And I find that that leads to so many things because of what we put as this this image. And when we now try to be more inclusive, um, you know, I think a lot of time we we say, okay, let's let's let people see people like themselves represented. Well, I mean, there's always going to be somebody that says, well, gee, I I don't see myself there. And I think that we all need to have the conversations because. No, it's, it's it's not possible to always see ourselves. It's not possible all the time to ignore because whoever you're using, if you're being fair, you should see somebody like yourself, maybe in this campaign, that campaign. But unfortunately, this has been an ongoing conversation for decades. And I don't want to say we can't get it right because I'm not really sure other than having these conversations and making everyone feel as special as they are, as we each are as an individual and unique, I I, I think that's the best place to go. I, I can't see how otherwise, you know, you're always going to see someone like you reflected. Mm-hmm. Yeah, someone right, like you right reflected. Up. And also the importance of 
as everybody starts to post, right? We live in a world where everybody's posting, everybody's telling us about their day. You can scroll for hours on Instagram and Twitter and TikTok and YouTube even and wherever else you want to scroll. But I think it's important that we um, really have candid conversations about filters and makeup and uh, what we're eating, what we're doing yeah. to make these photos and videos and situations look the way they do. And I have actually run into content like this, which is why I bring that up. You know, people who say, hey, isn't it fun using this filter? Or uh, it's interesting how this filter makes me look like I'm dot, dot, dot. So not only are you, you know, breaking that fourth wall or uh, taking away this imaginative uh, perfection, right? Imagined perfection or presumed perfection, but you're telling people how you're doing it. So it, it becomes more real. You know, yes, cool, you look good with this filter on, but you are talking about the fact that it's a filter or you're talking about how you're doing this with your your makeup, your looks, your lighting, your camera effects, whatever. And let's just face it, like, we are able, anyone can do it. Anyone can put oh, on a yeah. filter. Anyone can Photoshop. Anyone can whatever. But... Instead of saying, oh, doom and gloom, you know, I feel miserable for eating and, and having a good day and then but not looking a perfect body for this photo. Let's talk about what that imperfection looks like, too. And I, I don't think we can go from everybody looking beautiful on social to everybody being honest and candid about their their bodies, their shapes, their sizes, and knowing that they're not perfect and being okay with other people not being perfect. But yeah. this is kind of a point where we can start. Well, in the environment, right. we know, especially of late, doing Zoom everywhere and and Teams and 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 Skype, whatever it might be. When people are using video, your background, your lighting, it's not going to be perfect. Yeah. And a lot of people are saying, oh, the heck with that. Who cares? You know, that's what it exactly. is. You know, I mean, and they laugh at it and not... we poke fun at it and we're normal about yeah. it. Yeah. Right. And I think that that means that's your environment, that's your place. And we're all unique and wonderful in our own way. It's it's when we go out of our way and, and maybe you do that with the filters to poke fun or, or even just to make yourself what you what you perceive um better you know or you're not you know we're wearing unflattering stuff we all exactly. have those opinions and i think that that's you know or something that maybe it's got nothing but yeah. foul words on it but again on a, you, you are entitled um and we've accepted a lot more things because now again i think things that are insulting offensive there's no room for period but we do accept so and as blind people we hear it all the time poor audio than what used to be accepted in the broadcast world because things have spun and changed and as much as we say yeah we want perfect sound we want this and that we also recognize we want good quantity. We want uh, quality interviews. And maybe that person right. doesn't have, you know, that $1,600 microphone that makes them sound, hello there. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And not only that, too, you know, some kids I find, too, and, and I mean, this is how parents can even um, uh, kind of uh, watch their stuff. You know, you might find some parents that, that are going, no, you're not getting this because this is here, because that picture's mm -hmm. on the website. And or you might get, you know, parents or kids who might find that, you know, parents, they say to their parents, oh, my gosh, mom and dad or whoever it is, you know, can't you just leave me alone? Do you have to know everything I'm doing? Um, mm. And it doesn't necessarily have to be like that either. Right. It, you know, it can even be more. Well, of a I think of, our words okay, too, so Margaret, that we use on, on the web. You know? 
really can affect someone. You know, if you tell somebody, hey, don't eat that, you'll get and a negative term, you'll get pimples, you'll get bigger, whatever it might be. You know, yeah, there's lots of things we, we as, as young people eat, you know, you don't want to start them on the road of unhealthy eating at the age of 10 and 12. And you've got to control that as a parent. But you also got to control what fears you put in their head to make a child scared of eating something and say, well, they won't go near those biscuits anymore. Well, yeah, but if they associate anything with that kind of result, they could get themselves into a lot of trouble in these and eating disorders and other things that start creeping into your mind can really affect you. Yes, that's true. That's true. Okay, I want to change the direction here a little bit and come up and give you a nice positive story today. So okay. 10-year-old Cohen is a, is a young man from uh, Whitby, Ontario, and his uh, mother um, did something pretty unique, actually. Um, Cohen had a cousin who went to sick children to the hospital for sick children's here in Toronto when he was three months old because he was very sick. And when he got there, he received some great treatment and he made a full recovery. So Cohen decided that he wanted to do something to thank the hospital and give back. So right. for the weeks for the weekends in December, he set up a hot chocolate booth um, where mm. people could come and pick up the hot beverage to go, or they could uh, sit in the lovely seating area. And they had to deal with some pretty unique uh, things like, you know, very strong winds and weather and cold and all kinds of things. True. But no, that didn't stop mm -hmm. Cohen. Um, he uh, still went ahead and, and did what he had to do. In fact, one day Cohen's mom said they even uh, served the hot chocolate in the garage because <laughs> it was so windy. <laughs> and Cohen was hoping to raise about $300 uh, from this because he figured, you know, this would only be attended by neighbors and friends. In the end, he raised $6,130.90. Awesome. Wow. Yeah. Wow, for sure fedora's yeah. off to him. You ever do that, Megs? You ever run like a what? lemonade stand or anything? You know what I mean? I, I I remember I used to do it with my brother and sister. You know, when we were little, it was seemed to be the the uh, the in thing in the summertime. Like each day, you know, yes. every kid would kind of take turns, or every household would kind of take turns running their little lemonade stands. <laughs> you awesome. know, outside oh, with the nice. lemonades or the cookies. Yeah, yeah. How about you, Rum? Um, uh, only bake sales. Like if I'm thinking fundraising, bake sales during high school, and that was part of Rotary International. We were the interact. Yeah, but branch. did you ever do it yourselves? No, I don't know. Okay. My buddy's I don't think tried. I've ever even perfected making lemonade. This is a bucket list. <laughs> well, we, we tried awful warm yeah. lemonade. Yeah. yeah. Mags. Awful warm. All gross. Fantastic. Thank you very much for jumping in here today. Appreciate it. Well, have a great show, guys, and we'll talk to you soon. Okay, Margaret, thank you. That was contributor and freelance reporter Margaret Weldon joining us. And truly, it was the warmest lemonade ever. <laughs> and I never liked lemonade as a kid. Ew, it made my face do all sorts of things. Yuck. Oh, I love that. That's why I love lemonade, because of how sour it is. But I, I've always, any lemonade I get is better than the ones that I make. So it's kind of just dumping sugar in it. Pound, pound away. Make it thick with no, it. No, no, no. Mint. Oh. Mint. Mint lemonade. <laughs> All right, we're taking a break. We'll be back to talk parenting with Lucia Belafonte, and she's going to talk literacy, how we can promote it in our own homes with parents and kids. We'll be right back. This is Kelly and Romeo. It's fun, insightful, and inclusive. Kelly and Romeo return in a minute. Educating Kelly on lemonades here. 
Kelly, so you think that mint and lemonade is just not the average? Well, I, I don't recall it. But again, I'm not a big mint person, and I never really loved lemonade. Didn't hate mm. hate it. It just you know, it wasn't my go-to. So, But I do recall something as a kid. Mint was there. It wasn't as big as, you know, when I was a kid, as it is now. And I know there's people out there my age saying, are you kidding me? We had mint everything. And and maybe yep. that's so, you know, candy canes and so on. Um, fresh and maybe mint, that's though. where I reserved it for. Yeah, fresh yeah, mint. Candy oh, cane is boy. not the same. Like yeah, fresh you're, mint you're and lemonade. Fresh. Mm. So good. Just like, yeah. you know, iced tea, right? Things like yep. that. It's got to be yep, fresh. Yep. Uh, but now there's so many lemonades, raspberry and strawberry and I liked Blue all bark, the maybe. like I I like strawberry, raspberry, um, and I like lemon. lime probably better than I do lemon. I don't know about that. My mom's made some limeades no, I... for us when we were kids because we didn't have lemon, and I was like, "What is this?" But I used to try to make iced tea right with lemons and oh, or God. limes and stuff, and yeah. I enjoyed that. Oh yeah, very very good. All right. Well, uh, speaking of parents, let's talk parenting with Lucia Belafonte. Uh, we do this once a month with her to talk parenting. Are you ready to learn, laugh, and maybe even cry a little? Join me, Lucia Belafonte, as we explore how disability can affect your parenting journey. I'll share advice and stories to help you grow in confidence and courage. Lucia, do you enjoy lemonade? We have so many things to get to, but this is pressing. Oh my gosh, I absolutely love lemonade. I love limeade and I love mint. There you go. Wow. How many lemonade stands did you run as a kid? None. I know you did. None. Oh None. my good heavens, I thought if anyone along our roster True. of contributors set up lemonade stands, it would be you. For sure. No, never. No. It was not in my wheelhouse when I was a child. And maybe that's wow. because we lived in an apartment building. I'm not sure. I, to be honest yeah. with you, I just never did. I think I did do some with my own children, right? Right. right. Yeah. So that yeah. I did, well, I, but not and my I think own as a child. For my friends and I, we were all about building things. So I think it was mm. an excuse. This shack kind of looks like something you'd sell stuff out of. Let's do oh, lemonade. That's so true. Yes. <laughs> I love it. Lucia, you've been up to some very exciting things. So before we get to our topic of the day, which I've been telling people is literacy and promoting it in the yes. home, let's talk about this exciting news. Uh, thank you so much for bringing it up. I'm so excited. So I have my first children's picture book out, um, and that is Peter's Pocket. And I love it nice. because it... Do you know, Ramya and Kelly, it was originally written over 20 years ago as a tactile picture book. And the star program at W. Ross McDonald actually uh, published it and we were able to reproduce it. And then their funding stopped. So that dream ended and it's been now 20 some odd years and I decided to turn it into a picture book. But my my big dream is to really find a way to have that tactile book reproduced again. Wow. That's amazing. Yeah. I, and I can understand that on the tactile and yeah. wanting and striving yes. for that to return. And I think that's pretty amazing. Can you tell us about Peter's Pocket? Uh, Peter's Pocket is about a little boy, Peter. Um, and he just, I say, happens to be blind and he uses a white cane. He's independent and he does everything a, a typical little boy does. But his thing that the story really revolves around him finding items 
around his home and he loves to put them in his pocket. They're his treasures. But then he comes across people who needs what he has. And so he gives it away. Oh, oh. Yeah. that's lovely. Wow. So we've it's got generosity really in there. Story. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting because your topic today, I mean, we're talking pictures that tell those stories or yeah. a tactile book down the road. We're going to keep thinking that mm-hmm. because that'll have to happen. That'll be so. But we're talking about literacy on the program today. We are. And I loved your segment with Margaret. Um, so in full transparency, I wish I was brilliant enough to have um, orchestrated all of this, but it just happened that that Peter's pocket is finished and out just when we're talking about literacy. So that's kind of cute. <laughs> um, but, you know, literacy people, people, most people will understand it as reading and writing. But literacy is also Um, listening and speaking. And so that's what we're going to talk about today, helping to promote reading and writing and listening and speaking um, with your child. Okay. Well, let's talk Mm -hmm. about it. I mean, first of all, of course, Kelly and I have lived experience from how uh, this was promoted in our own homes as blind and low vision people. But let's talk about ways that parents can promote literacy at home. Absolutely. And I think that, you know, regardless of what disability your child might have. Um, If you make reading together a daily routine, that's a great start and make it something pleasant. So it might be that you want to do it in a particular um, chair or sofa, or it might be that it's a bedtime routine, whatever that might be, read together and spend the time to be relaxed and have that shared experience. And I think that will go a long way towards helping your child enjoy reading and the activity of reading together. So as sorry, my family would do that whole business of if I wanted to know about something, well, why don't you read that to me? Especially if I had the vision, when I had the vision a little bit to do that or to tell me about it, Cal, read a read when I was working on something and I was, because I've never been a real strong reader. My spelling has Mm -hmm. always been uh, something I've fought with all my life um, as a large print user. And when I, when I moved over to Braille and, and of course using uh, the computer, but I love that you've included here being able to speak and listen because there were so many things that I learned broadened my vocabulary because my parents read to me and my parents were not university professors or anything (laughs) like that. They, they were shy of their reading. I will say my mom Mm -hmm. more than my father, but I I wouldn't have known that was something they knew was important uh, to to make sure that uh, I was part of that. And I consider that being the ways that a couple of ways that parents promote literacy. And you're right. So I I would say so when parents are reading out loud with their child or even when you're reading and discussing uh, a book together, you're promoting literacy. And one of the ways, Kelly, is I, 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 you know, whether your parent is is reading a book themselves and sharing that experience with you and letting you know that they've read something and really enjoying it, that's modeling reading. And another way is reading together or having the child read when they're able to read out loud as part of that shared experience. And then talking about what you've read together. And, And I don't mean it in the sense of like drilling your child and saying, you know, what was that book about? No, I just mean a really nice natural conversation that the two two of you or however many of you there are, are going to share. 
And you could, you know, you could ask the question and say, you know, what was your favorite part of the story and why was it your favorite part? And then going back to the idea of modeling, you know, we don't have to directly teach something to our children. We can teach it when we model. So, for example, if your child has answered and they've um, used a word inappropriately, you as the adult can now use that word again in a sentence, but appropriately. And so you've modeled the correct way to use that word or that phrase. And there you go, without having to like, you know, sound like a drill sergeant. I think mm -hmm. that's lovely. It's respectful and, that works for people and learning it's a interactive. Language. Because interactivity yes. is, I think, very uh, crucial here in the example that you're, you're saying, yes. because you reading can be... Uh, an alone time thing, right? It can be, yeah. you know, I go and read on my own time uh, and that could be a daily thing as well. But there's yes. something to be said about coming back together and discussing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, yeah. And in our language too, Lucia, so many of us know that there's different meanings for every word. So modeling must really help with different uses and conjugation of those words. Right. That that the 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 nuances, the nuances yeah. of language are there. And when we speak with our children, you know, not just once, but repeatedly in a very relaxed manner, we know that we learn best when we're relaxed and calm. Right. And that will really help. And those nuances go towards that literacy because literacy is reading, writing, listening and speaking. Right. Right. Talk to us about mm -hmm. Braille literacy and the benefits of this. Uh, well, Braille literacy. And, you know, I'm going to say Braille literacy for me leads to independence. And I really want to start by asking people to consider this, you know, because I know we've made such tremendous advances in um, technology, but we would never assume or ask a child not to use pen and paper. And so I still don't understand why there's still this debate about whether or not Braille is relevant, because to me, Braille is like pen and paper for a sighted child. Mm -hmm. And so it leads to independence because then you, the child or even an adult is less dependent upon others or technology. It's something that you have accessible to you whenever you want it. And I think that's wonderful. Um, as well, I witnessed as an educator, so many students' self-esteem and self-confidence just skyrocketed when they became a Braille reader. They felt so proud of themselves. They were like their peers in that they could read independently and did not need to use technology. And I think that's so wonderful. Like, how lovely is it that something like learning how to read and write braille can increase a person's self-confidence mm. as well it will it can also help a child um, have that leadership role in a classroom so we're not mm -hmm. only promoting inclusion in a classroom right because now we're able to sit at our desk and read and write just along uh, sorry as well as all the other students in the classroom but we have that leadership role because if a student is asking or a classmate's asking me about what are you doing? What is that? How does that work? You can now talk about it. And so there in again, the child is now, um, I think, more in control of their environment and their world. And when we can have that, I think that's a wonderful thing. All well, these... I know as a kid. Oh, go ahead, Ram. I was just going to say all these examples that really mm -hmm. um, signify growth, right? Being yes. able to 
pick up your own, let's say, stencil and stylus or Braille or yeah. whatever, and yeah. learn how to write your own Braille, read your own Braille, then how that goes into inclusion in a classroom, how that goes mm -hmm. into the independence as you grow. And the pride, too, that word really sticks out to me because it's true. Yes. Um, as we get older, it, we really... It starts to, you start to notice uh, what yes. you're proud of. And some of these things, it's not happening now. It's things that you've picked up way earlier in life, which is why it's important going full circle back to doing it as a kid, making sure that this is yeah. promoted. Yeah. And, and I think the attitude, too, that we have about Braille literacy is important. And, you know, we can't don't only need to model reading at home um, like uh, a print book, but we can model as parents learning ourselves how to read and write Braille. That's right. And have that discussion with our child. And, you know, we can remember to say, I'm proud of you, but you should be proud of yourself because this is a huge accomplishment. And, and it really is when a child is is learning how to read and write Braille. It's it's an incredible accomplishment. Yeah, except you sometimes felt that your parents or well, my parents didn't know the Braille too well. But mm -hmm. I used to get annoyed at the teachers at the blind school. How come you're reading with your eyes? Because I couldn't do the same thing. But their reaction was, yeah, but you can read this in the dark, which is so true. Mm -hmm. right? You stop and said, yeah. Oh, oh, yeah. But I, I, I think when you look at things like the spelling alone, how it can help. Yes. I mean, and, and I understand some of us will yep. argue, well, there's contractions in grade two Braille. So maybe you start forgetting it. And I kind of put myself in that category. But there are so many uses um, to, to, to at least know it if you have that that ability growing up. But there's also a lot. Yes. And Lucia, I'm sure you've seen it over the years. The These reasons that people have come up to not bother. Oh, it's cumbersome. You can't cart a Brailler anywhere. That would be mm -hmm. so, you know, years ago, you learn how to use a slate and stylus where you manually punch in your dots. But right. there are those reasons. Now, at least people can use your smart device and use the Braille accessibility. Yes. You can use a Braille printer. And, and if you still want to sell the business of a computer, but still have them be able to read on their Braille display. There's a lot of Absolutely. that. It's that balancing it back to not say, be yes. so quick to sell it out. That's it. And and I would say, why eliminate something? Why not have right. everything available to us and use what we need at the time that it's best to use that method of uh, whether it's reading or writing or learning, right? Why limit yeah. ourselves? Why limit our children? Yeah. Right. Um, any closing closing thoughts before closing before you go? Yes. <laughs> well, I, I, I love that you said, you know, I, I really do want to emphasize like, yes, um, I share a story about one of my students when we started, when she started learning how to read and write Braille, uh, she was reading at a grade one level. By the end of the year, her reading, her spelling, her grammar and punctuation were at a grade six level. And I, I know that that was possible because of the time that we spent together reading and writing Braille. So mm -hmm. don't give up on it. That's my last word. Yeah. Yeah, it's so true. And it can be very discouraging. I, as I've said before, for me, when I started to learn Braille, it was mm -hmm. so I could do things faster, but it was at a point where I'm trying to learn other things. I'm a kid who gets, yes. oh, I don't want to be bothered with this. But like they say, uh, it's in time saves, what is it, nine or something like that? Oh, uh, yes. Yeah, that old well, saying. And it really helped. Yes. 
I, I like to liken it to foundational skills, right? They take us yeah. a while. The foundation takes the longest to maybe um, prepare and, and cure in a home. But once that foundation is set, then your house is, is set as well. It's not yes. going to tumble down into the ground, right? And to me, well, that, yeah. though, it's the... Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. you've pointed and that's the to same with and and even caning, right? Go or yes. getting a dog. It, it's it gives you those tools. Yeah. You've pointed it, to it, several examples today, Lucia, to encourage um, literacy in the home and reading together, modeling reading, learning braille along with your kids if you're a parent uh, whose yeah. kid is learning braille, and all of these things are really important. And I hope that people take these suggestions to heart because uh, it is important. Thank you so much. You're so very welcome. And thank you again for sharing Peter's Pocket with everyone. Oh, that was awesome. <laughs> yes, we'll keep promoting it. Thank you. Uh, thanks. Talk to you next month. Talk next month. Lucia Belafonte joining us for parenting. And this is once a month as we discuss uh, ways to, or things to keep in mind when parenting at home if you have a child with a disability. And she will be back very soon as well. We might switch things around for her in terms of when she comes on the show. So keep posted on those notes. Um, Braille literacy, always something that's in the back of my mind as I did not grow up learning Braille, but uh, try to and still attempt to learn it as an adult. Going to take a quick break. We'll be back to wrap up the show. Find out what's coming up on tomorrow's edition is now with Dave Brown, as well as the Wednesday edition of Kelly and Romeo. We'll be back. We'll be back with more of Kelly and Ramya after this short break. Wonderful AMI audio show and podcast and video podcast that releases weekly is The Pulse with your host, Joita Gupta. You can catch it this Thursday on AMI-audio at 1.30 p.m. Eastern, 10.30 Pacific. That's in the morning. Joita is discussing how I live... I take that back. As I live and breathe. And this is a new book of short stories about the experiences of youth with disabilities as we talk literacy, look at all these wonderful remarks. Her guests, author Lex and John, and Dolly Mendek, youth engage- engagement lead at Holland Bloor View, are joining her this week. And that's again the Pulse this Thursday, 1:30 p.m. Eastern, 10:30 a.m. Pacific on AMI Audio. Check it out on your favorite podcast platform as well as YouTube as a video podcast. Now, speaking of podcasts, you can check out any of today's show on your favorite podcast platform as well. Kelly and Ramia, Hour 1 and Hour 2, uploaded daily. So, Kelly, let's talk about some of the content from today's show that people can check out. Oh, my goodness. Well, we've had some really good conversations uh, when it comes to theater, to uh, self-image, but uh, Astro Access, I really enjoyed our chat today about those who got that opportunity to experience weightlessness and come up with solutions the disabled persons getting an opportunity to be in space. What an incredible conversation. Uh, so much more there, Ramya. So much more still to talk about in the future on said subject. Uh, I, I thought today that was a really nice one to go back because I know, you know, y- y- listening to that and trying to take it all in, you probably missed something. So no problem. Check it out through the podcast. Mm-hmm. So much detail that Lindsay gave us to uh, on her specific experience and her love for science, which is amazing because that's the conversation 
you know, in the bigger aspect, right? Why uh, it's important to have these opportunities for people who just love science with or without disabilities. Oh. Yeah. Um, really, really great and passionate. Uh, we also talked to Nathan Sartor about an upcoming performance that TO Live is presenting. That's in Toronto. Audio described with superior description services. And he talked about the um, just the work that Elvin LA Theatre does and how acclaimed they are. So check it out mm. because these opportunities are becoming so fantastic in the arts world in the GTA and around the country, of course. Let's go to Now with Dave Brown. The crew starts at 9 a.m. Eastern time every weekday for the Daily Morning Show on AMI-tv. Paul Daniel is one of the producers, and he's here to give us a preview of the Wednesday edition. Hello, Paul. Hello, Ramya. On tomorrow's show, journalist and former para-athlete John Lepke will discuss the upcoming Canada Games scheduled to take place in PEI next month. Uh, these games will also include sports like para-alpine, Paranordic and wheelchair basketball alongside their counterparts. And as you probably know, uh, everyone in Toronto knows there's a big storm coming, uh, snowstorm coming to hit Toronto tomorrow. And many of us will probably be working from home uh, if we're lucky. And our <laughs> contributor, Jenny Bovard, will give us some recommendations for podcasts and movies to enjoy during the winter months while we're cooped up inside. And yeah. speaking of movies, Dave, Alex, and senior producer Andrew Delanerall will offer their reactions and thoughts to the films that received Oscar nominations, Oscar nominations this morning. And there are quite a few Canadian titles in the mix. That's right. Oscar talk is on. Okay, so we know from past years that Andrika pays very close attention to Oscars, and she's got a lot of stuff to say about it. So I'm glad that that's starting. Thanks, Paul. Thank you. Excellent. Well, that's at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. You can check out Now with Dave Brown daily at that time. Um, and I'm really uh, glad that he put in parentheses, if we're lucky to stay home tomorrow. <laughs> yeah, not everyone. The, the work from home thing. I'm not sure how many people consider that lucky room. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> I know, I know. <laughs> well, let's talk about our show tomorrow, though. 2 p.m. Eastern time. You can catch Kelly and Ramia again. And on tomorrow's show, uh, Greg David is coming on to talk TV. And we're talking specifically the Canadian Screen Awards. That's a conversation to look forward to. Mm, for sure. Uh, also, Rum, there's uh, many new jobs in the gig economy out there. What does it mean exactly? Kevin Shaw, he stops by to explain during his entrepreneur segment. Looking forward to that one. I think my dog knows that it's time to go because he's nudging me for pets now. But thanks for joining us today. We'll be back again tomorrow to do it all over. This is Kelly and Ramia. I'm Sean Priest. Join me monthly for Sean of the Shed, where I introduce you to all the technology that can be so useful to us as blind or partially sighted people. Find Sean of the Shed wherever you find all your podcasts.